Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private CoreCast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind-the-scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org donate. Hi, my name's Kurt, and I host a podcast called Leading Saints. And what are the chances that you're actually listening to that podcast right now? Well, you are. This is the Leading Saints podcast. I'm Kurt Frankum, and uh, I welcome you back for the many listeners who subscribe. Thank you for subscribing. If you're new to Leading Saints, that's all right. Hey, we're just glad you're here. Sometimes it takes people longer than others, but that doesn't say anything about you as an individual. We love you, and you've landed in the right place. So this is a podcast where we talk all things leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint, because our mission as a 501c3 nonprofit is to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And this is one way we do it. And this is another phenomenal episode where I interview John, by the way. Now, if that name doesn't sound familiar, you either joined the church in the last month or you haven't walked into a desert book ever. So John, by the way, is a famous author that uh, has written countless books, many I've, I've read and enjoyed. And he does a lot of content and writing for youth and does Firesides and EFYs and Education Week at BYU. I mean, there's so many places and venues that he's been that I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. But if you're not, I'm so glad that I get the chance to introduce you to John, by the way. It was fun to talk with him in this interview because we talk a little bit outside the context we generally hear him, right? It was typically in a fireside where he's teaching great gospel principles. But we talk about his time as a bishop. It was a few years ago when he was released as a bishop, and uh, his some of his perspectives and thoughts are so valuable and also so practical that many leaders, whether you're a bishop or not, or serving elsewhere, many leaders can benefit so much from from John's perspective that you're about to hear. Oh, and also his perspective, just as far as understanding youth, teaching youth, connecting with youth, this is definitely an episode to share with uh, the youth leaders in your in your board. So here is my interview with John. By the way. Today, I have with me John, by the way. How are you, John? Good. How are you? Very good. Now, uh, I, I remember years ago, you coming to my uh, early morning seminary devotional. And so if anybody's listening who doesn't <laughs> recognize the name John, by the way, you probably haven't been a youth in the last 30 years, maybe. Has it been that long that you've been at this? Yeah, probably. I have uh, kids that come up to me, hey, my mom, dad saw you at EFY or whatever. And, <laughs> and so I always... Oh yeah, I guess I guess I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, uh, time flies when you're having fun, right? And I, it seems like you're having fun most of the time doing this stuff. Right too. Sure. Yeah. That's awesome. 
So if uh, individuals maybe aren't as familiar with you, what do you tell people when they say, you know, what do you do for work? You know, I've been a a teacher since uh, 96. I have taught, I taught Book of Mormon at, uh, you know, some religion courses at BYU Provo starting in 96. And then in about 2005, I found I was commuting down to Provo because my wife and I live in Salt Lake. So I thought I'll just teach down at the BYU Salt Lake Center. So I've been teaching part-time, as a part-time religion instructor, the best way to say it is a part-time instructor in religious education, because <laughs> okay. if you say part-time, that doesn't sound very good. So I've been teaching Book of Mormon, a little bit of New Testament, just a part-time instructor. I don't have a PhD, so I'm just part-time. So I tell people I'm still trying to figure out when I, what I want to be when I grow up. But for the most part, I've just been a teacher. That's right. That's great. So you're, uh, you're a part-time instructor, but you uh, strive to live your religion full-time. Is that, that what we're clarifying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part-time religion doesn't sound right. So <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And it's, it seems like, and you came, I was in a stake presidency in South Salt Lake a couple of years ago, and you came and, and spoke to our, our youth groups there. So you do a lot of speaking and firesides and that type of thing when, as you have time. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just go where I'm invited. I always check with the presiding authority and what do you want me to do? And here's what I'm planning on doing. Is that okay? And you have the last word and try to be really respectful of that. Yeah. I was uh, a bishop a few years ago. Now I'm back on the high council in my stake. So that's great. Well, awesome. So, I mean, you've written written stacks of books. I mean, so many books, I can't really remember all the titles, but are you, do you seem to always be working on some type of book book project? Is that uh, how the last few decades have gone for you? Yeah, I guess that's fair to say. I, I really like to read and, and uh, I find myself putting tons of sticky notes in books and look at this quote, look at this idea. And, you know, there's usually things I'll share with my class and a number of, of the books I've written kind of have come out of things I've taught in the classroom and gotten excited about. And just have enjoyed it. I never know if they're going to get published or not. And, and that's okay. I just enjoy the process a lot. Yeah. And I, I was sort of curious about that process. Uh, I, and it takes my mind to, uh, you know, I talk with Brad Wilcox and he sometimes approaches Desert Book with a book idea and they say, well, that's nice, but you're, how about you write this book? And this is what you could do, right? So sometimes do you find that you just have to write about what you're passionate about and if it gets published, it gets published. If not, it doesn't? Yeah, sometimes. I think, uh, that uh, there was one time when Desert Book said, what do you want to write about next? And I, was, I said, well, really? Well, I, I want to write a book about golf. And I was, uh, I was astonished that they said, okay. And so I did. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they liked that one. So I wrote another one just on kind of sports in general, mostly baseball, football, basketball, and just life lessons from sports. And, and then they said, write one about fishing. So I did. And so but usually it's, uh, it's something that's on my mind or, or that's maybe collectively on everyone's mind. I mean, we're all amateurs in the church and trying to understand uh, the scriptures were a relatively new church, you know. And uh, so it's been fun to write about the Book of Mormon a lot mm. and to read and research. And, and so that's, uh, I, I'd say probably though most of the time they're saying, do you have any ideas about this or could you write about this? But Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you mentioned, obviously, uh, this podcast is focused on on leadership, you know, being called Leading Saints, and you've had an opportunity to serve as bishop, and I'm sure in various other capacities, some official and some maybe not so official with leadership. What do you remember about that experience as far as being called as bishop? Did 
was it the typical scenario the 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 guys at his five year mark and there's some shuffling happen and, and your phone rings? Well, yeah, kind of. I kind of got some forewarning from somebody from one of the former bishops and uh, from the former bishop and and uh, kind of uh, dropped some hints that and I had been an executive secretary and things like that, so I kind of had been accustomed to kind of what they do and things like that. It would never be something I aspire to when they called me, I had six children from 11 years old down to two. Hmm. I fact, as I thought about it, I had more ch- children at home than anybody else in the ward. And yet, <laughs> yet they called me. So I was a little bit, are you sure? And are you crazy? And are you trying to test my marriage? And uh, so I guess like with all of us, it's a struggle to know, did this come from the Lord? Or was this just an idea you had? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's still there's still a way we can get out of it. You know, nothing's <laughs> official yet, right? <laughs> That's yeah. So, so thinking back, I mean, to that, I mean, first week as a bishop. Now, with the uh, the blessing of hindsight, I mean, if you're going back to day one, is there any like strong leadership principle or habit or tactic or anything, any piece of advice that you give yourself on day one after living through those years of, of being a bishop? Boy, there's so many things that come to mind, and everybody's different as far as I've had two brothers in brother-in-laws, brothers-in-law, however you say that, that have been bishops in very different parts of, uh, shall we say, parts of the vineyard, whatever. And they had different challenges. I think some of the best advice that I got was to, to say, I'll get back to you on that. (laughs) (laughs) And because of my particular place and where I live. And I had, uh, before I even sat in the chair, I had people in my office asking me for money for support. Mm. That was a shocker. I didn't know that would happen. And I didn't know it happened so quickly. And as I knew we would be talking about this, I thought of some of the, one of the best things I ever did was just go to lunch with a couple of my friends who are also bishops. And in addition to just being a little same boat therapy, yeah, it was just great to to hear. Oh man, you deal with that, and you deal with that, and of course we were very careful with confidentiality if anybody's worried about that. But it was uh, it was just nice to know, hey, they're dealing with this too. And I think one of the best things that I ever heard, and I wanted to share this because I thought if there's other bishops who are also have significant welfare challenges in their, in their ward, this might be helpful. But one of the best things that I heard was from a former bishop of mine, who's now serving as a mission president, but he said he would get out a yellow pad and kind of make three columns when he sat down with people. And he would, he, well, let me back up. First, he would just say, what do you need? What did you come in for? What do you need? Just write down everything. And without saying anything about, you know, well, we can or we can't do that or whatever, just what do you need? And Mm. put it all down. And then he would make the three columns and say, okay, what do we want the church to do? What do we want the Lord to do? And what do you need to do? Mm. I love that. And that was so practical. I, I think I read the church's booklet providing in the Lord's way about 10 times. Hmm. But 
this was a little bit more specific. The principles and the doctrines were there in providing the Lord's way. But that very practical idea of, okay, this is what you need. Now, what do you think you need to do for that? What do you think the church needs to do for that? Or me, the bishop, you know, what do you want to do? What can you do to help make that happen? And be very prayerful about it with them was the advice I got. And that was a wonderful piece of advice because I found that sometimes, not all the time, I was dealing with a mentality that was just go ask the church, they'll give you everything. And, or, or they have, they have things like that. And that's, a, I'm sorry, that's probably at the, the worst end of it. But that's what I was dealing with before I was there for a week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know the feeling for sure. I was like, Wow, really? And so I studied that booklet. But when I got that advice, I think that in 10 minutes taught me more on the practical side of what were the actual words to use when someone approaches you and is asking for assistance. You know, and there are certain things the booklet said that were great, like commodities before cash. And we support life, but not lifestyle. Like, uh, you know, don't ask me to make your boat payment or don't ask me to, to pay for your Netflix or something like that. And just some of those principles were very helpful, but the actual idea saying, what are you going to do to help solve this problem, which may be an ongoing problem, put people in the mindset that was much better of uh, this is, I, I felt like as a bishop sometimes, and I'm speaking only of welfare issues now, people wanted to hand me their problem. Yeah. And so sometimes I would hand it right back and say, wow, what are you going to do? Or what do you need the church to do? Or what do we need? need the Lord to do in this case, and really kind of work on it together in the spirit of, of brotherhood, if I could get there. There were some people that didn't like that, what do I have to do, and would just leave, but they had just found on the internet, go ask your bishop, he'll pay for stuff. And I feel like I'm casting at this a little negatively, but this was the hardest thing I dealt with at first, so that's why I'm talking about it first. Yeah. The hardest thing I dealt with was, how do I do this? I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do, and and uh, I felt like it would have been nice to have a little more, more training, perhaps. But I love that idea of the three columns, and that helped me a lot. Yeah, I love that. And that, you meant talk about this mentality that, that they, because I remember as a bishop, individuals walking in, and I was in, you know, what's considered an inner city ward where there's, you know, people come out of nowhere. I don't, I've never even seen you, and you're asking me for money, right? And they're in this state of mind or this mentality is very transactional. I come in here, you write me a check, and then I leave, right? And that's how I've heard this goes. And so shifting that to suddenly, you know, with the columns, it shifts into this, well, I'm sort of like your mentor, and we're going to work through this together, and let's figure out what the problem is so that we can figure out together how we can solve this problem, right? Yeah, and I, I never said it out loud, but I had the words come into my head once, I'm your bishop, not your banker. And... uh <laughs> I felt like my idea is helping you with your spiritual well-being first. And of course, all of life is, goes together, but let's talk about getting your spiritual act together first. And I kind of didn't expect that, but I see that in the war chapters in the Book of Mormon. Captain Moroni never put religion on the back burner. It was the front burner. It's mm. If the word of God be declared, and now we'll make swords, and we'll make fortifications, and we'll make, you know, towers. And, but it was always, we got to get our spiritual act together was the first thing, not, not well, we got to figure out how to eat, and then we'll, we'll solve this thing later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm just envisioning, we need to get some hats embroidered, 
that says, I'm the bishop, not the banker. And then you could just put it on and then say, hey, how can I help you? You know, this is, <laughs> all right, bad idea, bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So any any other, as far as welfare goes, because I think this, this is one, like you said, like this, you almost crave a little training, but there's so much diversity in different wards and things. We don't really know what that training would look like, but any other perspective or thought you've had as far as welfare is concerned that you didn't mention? Yeah, one of the things that I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's been an emphasis in the church to push more things to the ward council. Mm, sure. And I felt like, and in council with my stake president, maybe this council was just for me, but that worthiness issues, those are all yours, Bishop. But welfare, you can involve the ward council. How can we help this family? And then you've got more on your team and you don't feel like you're doing it alone. And at one point, I called a couple to be kind of welfare coordinators. And yeah. they would go through the chart with me. What is it that you need? Uh, what do you need the Lord to do? What do you need the church to do? What are you going to do? And then they would come to me with a recommendation. And that just put a nice level of separation there. And also, I had two different ears hearing it. And then, you know, there were a number of us hearing it. And then when the ward council, when there are certain things we could share with the ward council, we could uh, use that uh, greater number of people to help figure out a way to solve the problem. And, and there were times when, to put it bluntly, I just had to say, and my welfare coordinator did too, you can't afford to live in Mill Creek. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you can't afford to live here. And everything we've talked about, you will still be having shortfall in your budget. So, I mean, that's another thing, helping people write a budget. I mean, that's a, that was something the couple could do. And it was, some people had never written a budget. And so it was a great opportunity to, to teach kind of a life skill of, uh, and then to help them to see this will be a long-term problem. And the church can help you short-term here and there with things like this, but we're not a long-term solution to a budget shortfall, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That may sound unfeeling, but I felt like one of the most charitable things. In fact, I remember getting a call from a guy that was so excited that he found a place with lower rent and utilities and how excited he was about that. And I, we were moving him closer to self-sufficiency, financial self-sufficiency, which I thought that's a step. That's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And that, that's such a, the tough dynamic that bishops have to deal with is just because you feel like you're not being very nice when you don't solve their problem with a check sometimes when it's like, well, you may need to move. And they look at you like, no, that's not on. The, that's not an option I'd like to discuss. Right. And so but you have to have those tough conversations. That's just another way to show them love. Right. Yeah. And I just feel like sometimes the, the easiest thing might be to write a check, but it's not really helping. It's yeah. just kicking the can down the road where there's other problems of better job or are cutting expenses or things. And I always felt like I'm trying to move you closer to self-sufficiency, to self-reliance. That's a better word. And of course, not spiritual self-reliance. We need the Lord, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, sure. Always trying to move you closer to financial self-reliance so that you can, along with all Christians, help take care of the poor. I served my mission in the Philippines and my mission president, who was... Uh, he was kind of doing his own perpetual education fund before the church was. And hmm. he, he started a, an organization called Enterprise Mentors to help the Filipinos 
so many of whom had little businesses in, uh, in their backyards to help them learn how to have a business plan, how to get a loan. And there was even a school over there called ACE uh, that was just developed. ACE means the Academy for Creating Enterprise. And it was a school that would qualify for these perpetual education funds. And it was so cool to hear return missionaries that I knew that were, that were going back after their mission was a step up in their standard of living. For me, going to the Philippines was a dramatic step down. Yeah. Uh, places having no hot water and taking a bucket shower. And for them, it was a step up. And then going back to nothing. And I just thought, wow, President Hinckley, that, that idea has helped so many of people that I know, former companions, who now know how to go into a banker with, with a business plan and start a business. And, and I get a calendar every month or every year from ACE with these success stories. And, hmm. you know, they're out the kinks with the Perpetual Education Fund. But it's kind of exciting to see that idea of I'm going to move you closer to self-reliance. And I think we're trying to do that same thing here with, with welfare issues. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I love that. So stepping out away from the welfare topic, and you mentioned just having a young family at home with a variety of of, uh, of ages. What would you? What advice would you give to uh, you know a bishop with a young family? Any any routines or tactics that really work for you and your wife to to make that work so that it, it wasn't a a strain on the marriage? I found that I had to just tell my counselors on Tuesday nights when we met. I'm going home at 10. I don't care what we're in the middle of. I'm going home at 10. I, it was really hard the first year. I kind of felt like, you know, I've made this covenant with my time and talents and everything. And I think I overdid it. And I finally had to get to the point where, yeah, well, you also made a covenant with your wife and uh, had to just say, I'm done. Somehow people will survive if I'm not here. <laughs> yeah. Go home and I'm going to have family prayer with my family. It took me a while to figure it out, but, but I finally did, I think. And I, you know, my wife can say now that I found a good balance. I, but at first it was, it was hard. And that was another thing that was helpful to talk to other bishops with about. But um, I, I tried to, I had that, I heard that motto from somebody. And I, I've heard it attached to different general authorities, which is always dangerous. But <laughs> the, you know, but the quotation was, it takes a really good meeting to be better than no meeting at all. Oh, yeah. I've heard Elder Ballard is, ty- I think, typical. He's <laughs> Who knows? one that I've heard, too. But I had, when I was called in 2010, I had a flip phone, and my counselors both had smartphones. So I went and got myself a smartphone. When we started with the Ward Council, I started calling it Virtual Ward Council. And I said, there's so many administration items that we could do via text all week long. And then we don't have to meet for so long and so early. And when we do meet, we can say, who needs help? Which families need our help? And focus on that instead of so much calendaring and and planning. And uh, easier said than done. But we made progress with that. We really did with, with using this tool of the internet and our texting to bring up things throughout the week that we could solve so that when we were there at Ward Council, we could really focus on individuals yeah. on ministry. Yeah, I love that. That um, First of all, just, I want to underscore the fact that you said, you know, to strike that balance of, you know, home and church and these different responsibilities, it, it took some time, right? It's nothing you're going to figure out on, on week one and, and magically it happened. So be patient with yourself, right? 
yeah, it was, uh, it was the hardest time in my time as, as a bishop trying to figure out that balance and trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be mad at me today? And that, that uh, I remember once I was like, I'm not finding much joy in this calling. And, and that's a, a horrible thing to say. So come visit me in the terrestrial kingdom, but uh, <laughs> I'll be there with you. you know? <laughs> yeah, I, there was not a lot of joy. It was more like a lot of stress. And those moments came and, and would come, but it was kind of a real tender mercy. I got on a plane once to go speak somewhere, and it was a, uh, I want to say it was a 767. So there's two seats and then an aisle and then three seats in the middle and then an aisle and then two more seats. So a big mm-hmm. plane. Yeah. And of all the people that could have sat next to me, next to me, across the aisle was, was Robert L. Millett, who was a former dean of religious education at yeah. BYU. And I had this, this wonderful conversation for my, my memory as we we're flying to Atlanta about how he did that. And he was, listen, I'm right there with you. This, it was hard for me. And he, it, we, it was just so nice to have a little same boat therapy. And, and so I really feel like talking to others who have struggled with that and like you're doing with this podcast is helpful. Yeah. Just knowing somebody else deals with this too. I'm not the only one was helpful. And I thought, wow, what are the chances I sit next to him? I think the Lord arranged that because he knew I was having, I was like, I don't really feel a lot of joy in my calling. I'm getting a pit in my stomach on Saturday night and and especially at the beginning of the month. And some people listening know exactly what I mean by that. That's when rent is due and people come telling you they're going to be evicted if you don't help them and all sorts. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. This calling is a lot different than what I thought it was, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that just being real that, you know, there's, you go through these moments and sometimes they're longer than you expect where you're just like, man, like I am just not enjoying this, even though, I mean, I, again, nobody signs up for it or, or wants to do it because it's enjoyable, but you know, you're, you're in the work, you're serving the Lord. You feel like, you know, there should be a you know, it should be great. I guess it's sort of like being a missionary, right? There's some of those long days where you're just knocking doors and nothing's happening, right? Yeah, thank you for saying that. It was just not what I expected. It was it was hard. It was, I was losing sleep. I was getting angry phone messages. I had my garage door egged one night. <laughs> I think I know why, but I, I can't say for sure. Yeah. But I think connected with a tough conversation about somebody and, and money. And yet, just like you, I thought, Hey, when was the Savior's life ever easy? When was Abinadi's life ever easy? When was Joseph Smith's life ever easy? When was Nephi's life ever easy? And all of them had terribly difficult times. And, and you know, comparing them, I thought, hey, this is a piece of cake compared to what some went through. And, and am I assuming that I shouldn't have to have any trials? You know, that's that that are that great are thou greater than he thing in Liberty Jail. So yeah, I thought I just got to go through this. You know, yeah, and I often draw the the parallel with Liberty Jail. This, you know, when we think of Liberty Jail, we think of remarkable revelations that came from that experience. But they were in there for months and months, and so most days it was just you know stare and look at the dirt, you know. And but there were those moments that really made it all worth it, right? Yeah, and I had uh, I have a son on a mission in Iceland right now. Wow, and I was and my daughter just got home from France six months ago, but. I was in a fisher mission. Uh, there's a, a verse in Jeremiah 16, 16, which says, I'll send forth fishers and they will fish them and I'll send hunters and they will hunt them. And I've heard the comparison made between hunting and fishing, especially like New Testament fishing. 
or Old Testament fishing, throw a net over the side. And that was the Philippines. We, if, if you weren't teaching discussions, you just weren't trying very hard because mm-hmm. you could always get to listen to you. And, and it was a fisher mission. We had, we had baptisms uh, every month and people willing to listen and people that were humble and wonderful. And in Europe, my son Andrew said something pretty, pretty pointed to me. He said, Dad, I'm going door to door annoying people. Mm. And I, you know, <laughs> and he's in a different kind of a mission. And I, the point I'm getting to is I graduated from BYU and you don't have to go there. Of course, that, that's not what I'm saying. They rejected me three times, John. Thanks for bringing yeah. it up. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I had. I couldn't, I couldn't get in today, but <laughs> I, I thought these, these BYU football players were writing uh, to the missionaries who were on the football team that were out serving, and these would pop up once in a while, and I would see these, and I printed some of them out, and they were really good, and then there was a guy, oh, he's a guy that wrote a book that was a former football player, and he said the funniest thing in one of, in one of these chapters, oh, it's the guy's name, Shane Hunter, I think, anyway. He said that you go to a, a homecoming of a missionary and you hear these fantastic stories. And this guy said on my, in my mission, I had fantastic stories, but the other 700 days and, you know, 720 <laughs> days were pretty hard. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what it was like as a bishop. I had some wonderful, great moments, but I had some very long weeks and long months only punctuated once in a while by these wonderful, wonderful moments, you know? Yeah. And I needed to know that it wasn't it, like a mission. Every day wasn't great. A lot of days were difficult. And the ratio of that in a hunter mission, my son is having very few great days and a whole lot of, of long days. And, you know, my heart aches for him because my mission was so different. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you like, drawing the parallel to, to those leadership roles because, you know, there probably are some bishops who maybe they're in more of that Fisher dynamic where it's just great experience after another. But I guess the main point is like, don't let that reflect back on you as an individual, right? It's not that you can't figure it out or you're broken or whatever. It's just, it is what it is and we get through it and we're sanctified by it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I felt like the sacrament meetings or I had a time to actually interact with people. That's where I just thought, this is where I can make a difference. And I will tell you right now, and the Lord will back me up. I'm a terrible administrator. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I love ideas and doctrines, but the, the minutia and the administration, I was terrible at it. And I needed to hand a lot of that to my counselors. And uh, so for me, it was trying to be about greeting people and things like that. And that I doubt that anybody has ever said about their bishop, you know, I really love my bishop because boy, he got his reports in on time, you know, (laughs) I really, my bishop really had an impact on me because of his, uh, his paperwork was impressive. (laughs) Right. I mean, look at this audit report. Isn't this just beautiful, you know? (laughs) So I felt like where I could try to make a difference was in the other thing. And, and that brings up kind of a fun story that you're, listeners might enjoy. And that is that when I first got LDS tools on my phone, I don't know if everybody has, mine got removed. I don't know if it's been put back on, but I had everybody's birthday. Yeah. And there was a a man in our ward that went to serve a mission in London as a mission president, but uh, 
he used to, to call me on my birthday. And I thought, well, this is easy. And so at the end of the day as a bishop, uh, there were, I don't think there were ever more than five or six. Usually there were only one or two birthdays. And I would just call people at the end of the day, usually 8.30 or 9, and say, happy birthday. I'd sing, I'd sing. I'd say, you want to hear the long version or the short version? You know, short version was, this is your birthday song. It isn't very long. And that's all I do. And uh, <laughs> we're just thinking about you. We're so glad you're in our ward. We love you so much. And uh, just thinking about, I hope you have a wonderful day, a wonderful celebration, and see you later. And I can't believe the mileage I got out of that. Yeah. And after doing it for a year or two, people were waiting for the call. And it was so dumb. It was so simple. <laughs> but, oh, we were hoping you would call Bishop. How are you? And, and I also, you know, it, it dawned on me that with uh, the rank and file, your average member of the church, your mainstream faithful member, you don't see him that much. You see him at tithing settlement. Yeah. And people with problems, you see a lot more, and that's fine. But I found this was a way to connect with people just on their birthday that was so simple that took almost no time. But I was amazed at what that meant to people. I, I'm still amazed at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really just those those little routines that you can find. It doesn't have to be a birthday call. Maybe you can start with that. But just being consistent with it. And because you can be so consumed by the people setting appointments right on your schedule that you feel like there must be only 10 people in my ward because that's i only meet with 10 people over and over again you know and so reaching out to the rank and file is is huge you go along yeah the 80 20 rule in my time with 20 percent of the people or sometimes 90 10 or whatever so that's exactly right and i thought this is a way that the mainstream member that can feel like the bishop remembered me today boy you know and i seriously i was amazed with with what an impact such a simple thing had. So yeah, uh, that may be helpful to, to some out there that are looking for some more, some more joy and impact in their calling. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're short on time a little bit here, but I want to make sure we touched on just your experience and perspective uh, teaching and working with youth. Uh, obviously that's becoming more and more emphasized, especially for bishops is working with youth. And you've, I mean, you've had decades teaching even back when I was in seminary. And I, I would imagine that, and maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but teaching me as a seminary student in high school is maybe different than when you present to kids now. And any advice you'd have on leaders that are striving to connect and teach youth more effectively? You know, I am often complimented on this great ability to work with youth. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have a sense of humor. That's about it, you know? Yeah. And struggle just like it's one thing to do a fireside that you've you've got planned and prepared and your powerpoints ready and it's quite another thing to teach a sunday school class and to have a set curriculum that you need to go through and now the kids are so distracted you, you they might be on their gospel library app and they might not you know and uh i feel like right after i was bishop i was uh, went to teaching sunday school with my wife with the teenagers and it was just as challenging for me as it is for anybody to try to get through things and i would go back to some of the simplest ideas of people don't and it's been said a billion times but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care type of the thing i also think when you're in a leadership position if you can help to put people in place with the youth who are great examples 
somebody told me something once that I just think is so true that helped me a lot as people, young people, young people govern their lives more by example than by principle. You're not generally going to hear a 15-year-old say, well, I know all my friends are doing it, but it's the principle of the thing that bothers me, mom, right? <laughs> uh, you're, you're, yeah. more often, you're more often going to hear them say, all my friends are doing this. And an older person is not going to come to you, middle-aged person, and say, well, Brother Jones gets away with it. Why can't I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lives more by And so with young people, I found that if I wanted to teach a principle, I could find an example in the scriptures or a real live human and try to eliminate the you should be like this. But it was here's this person's story, look what they did, isn't that amazing? And in their own heart and mind, they will supply the, I should be that way. That's been my philosophy with teenagers. Find an example, a great story. Wow, look at what they did, and we can all admire it. And we'll get our own prompting to, wow, I really like that. Um, I should be that way. But when we're, and, and it's particularly hard, in a ward setting. If I go to do a fireside at your stake, the kids know that I don't know them personally. They will listen to me differently than if it's their bishop saying, you need to do this because they're all he knows, or my parents talk to him. And I think this is one of the magic things about EFY that works so well, is that they would evaluate what they were hearing differently because they didn't think that mom or dad put them up to it. (laughs) Yeah, that's, Great point. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I can go to a fireside and I can say things that mom and dad and bishops have been saying forever, but they will listen differently. because And, and so that's why I want my kids to go to firesides that are not given by me. Um, yeah. <laughs> you've probably heard the old saying, an expert is anybody from out of town. Yeah. Someone else says it, I'll listen differently than if it's, oh, my bishop's always hammering me about that, you know, or my leaders are always saying that to me. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, that's powerful. And I, I definitely see that in your style of teaching, you know, as far as that, you know, giving them examples is it doesn't have to be necessarily people in their life or in the neighborhood or, you know, uh, real, real life people that are alive today. But you do that a lot with the, you know, scriptural prophets and people say, you know, look, check out Moroni, you know, look, look at the example he was and what he did. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, then we can identify those traits and, you know, that, that's just, that's one of the things that I try to do. In fact, I, I wrote a book years ago. You can find all my books at the Desert Industries, but I wrote a book <laughs> called <laughs> How to Be an Ordinary Teenager. And one of the reasons it worked so well is on one side, I had uh, extraordinary or ordinary teens do this, extraordinary teens do this. And never once does it say you should, but yeah. it's always, here's what an ordinary teenager is like. But an extraordinary teenager does this. And it never says, and you ought to also. It just Mm -hmm. kind of lays it out. And then you can look and say, huh, I want to be like that. And I think taking the you should out of it helps with teenagers. But there's one more thing that I was thinking about I wanted to leave with you. Yeah. If you have time. Yeah. I think most of the church is familiar with uh, Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he wrote another book called The Six Events of the Restoration. 
And it was one of those things that I marveled. How did he see that in there? But there it is. And his thought was, his thesis for this book was that not only were the events of the restoration important, but the order in which they came is a formula for solving life's problems. That first vision answered the question, who is God and who am I? Joseph, this is my beloved, he called him by name. In one of the accounts of the first vision, Joseph Smith says, my soul was filled with love. The next event was the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Moroni shows up, right? And that answered the question, whose am I? I belong, I am Christ. He has, he has suffered for me. He has offered to, he has taken my sins upon himself. Whose am I? I am Christ. The next event was the restoration of the priesthood, which answers the question, how do I receive Christ? How do I get back to God? And the fourth event was the restoration of the church. Where do I go to mm. receive Christ? The ordinances are there in the church because that's where the priesthood exists. And we have kind of more in common with our, our Catholic friends on that one, that there needs to be a church, that a place to go to get the ordinances. Where some churches would say ordinances, that's, that's nice, but that's not necessary. Anyway, and then there's a couple more uh, what work do I do? Well, that's the restoration of the keys of salvation for the living and the dead. That's gathering Israel. And uh, why? What's it all about? That's the temple. We're trying to get people to the temple. That's why we gather Israel. Uh, so let me just share this paragraph of Brother Covey's that yeah, please brings do. it focus. He said, in bringing the world out of a state of apostasy, God gave us a perfect pattern to use in working with our family members and other people. How did he do it? Notice he revealed light and knowledge in a particular order. First, he dealt with identity and relationships. Okay, so there's your first vision. Then concepts, that is the gospel. Then structure or organization, that is the ordinances and the church. Finally, actions and behavior. That's very important. If we want to help our children or other people change their behavior, we begin by improving the quality of our relationships with them. And we introduce new ideas before we introduce new expectations and controls. In other words, we help them see the world differently. When a person's paradigm changes, everything else changes with it. So that's from the six events, the restoration model for solving life's problems, page 224 and 225. But what I loved about that, I had a kid come into my class once when my wife and I were Sunday school teachers. This was a long time ago when I right after I got married, with the mohawk and pierced earrings and everything. Now, here's an easy question. Should I hand him for the strength of youth and have him look up dress and grooming? <laughs> Probably not. That's lesson four or five or six. That is so far down the list. And Brother Covey taught me, you go right back to lesson one. There is a God, and he is real, and he loves you. And I stayed on that point for weeks when that kid was in my class. And we never cracked for the strength of youth and looked at dress and grooming. And a lot of times we do that. I'm sorry to say, I think I, I messed up once going, this was before I was bishop, but we all put on our church uniforms and went knocking on doors to try to fix our records. And yeah. we had some doors slammed in our face like we were on a mission. And it was like, look what you just did, John. You showed up with lesson four. Hey, come to church. And you should have gone back to lesson one. I'm your neighbor. 
God is real. He loves you. How's your family? What can, you know, it's, and you know, Clayton Christensen that just passed away, his yeah. whole deal was don't in a standard of living area like ours, you don't go out to people and say, you need the church. You say, we need you. Yeah. <laughs> come and come and speak to our youth about this. Come and help us with this. We need you. It was a, I thought that was a brilliant thing. So I'm not very smart, but I don't have people who are. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we read books, right? All these smart people. So exactly. Brother Covey nailed that. Start with oh, identi- that. identity and relationships. And the church is way down at lesson four. Yeah. And when I, I think you, you kind of alluded to, I wrote a book about Moroni. Well, mm-hmm. I look at those chapters wrote. He didn't get to the church until Moroni six. Before that, it was the Holy Ghost. It was the Savior. It was the priesthood. He didn't get to how we run the church until Moroni 6. Yeah. Followed a similar order that Brother Covey did, I yeah. think so. Yeah, I, I would say just on the, kind of a side note with Brother Covey that uh, you think his, you know, secular books are good. Check out many of the books he wrote about the gospel. I mean, the other one I read is The Divine Center, like completely changed a lot of my perspectives on on life and leadership. So good stuff. So, John, I really appreciate this as we wrap up. I got one more question for you, but uh, if people do want to find your books other than going to Deseret Industries, I hear there's another Deseret bookstore that maybe you could send them to. Any, or if people want to follow you or get connected, anywhere you'd send, uh, anywhere you, that you would send them. Well, yeah, the DI, Amazon's good. I'll tell you a funny story. I found one of my books at DI that was almost brand new. I opened it up, and it had been writ- assigned to a member of my ward. So... <laughs> <laughs> I bought it dollar. I took it home. I showed my wife, and she said, "Let's give it to him again." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> At least drive maybe out of the county and go to a desert industry before you donate it, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Go to a different DI, not the one that I stop at once in a while. But usually, <laughs> awesome. I'm looking for books because I love books. But there's, I've gotten connected with Meg Johnson and Hank Smith lately, and. They might be fun to interview too for you. Yeah, I've been I've interviewed Hank, but not uh, Meg. So, yeah, but we started a little group together, and we call it Jumping Turtle. It's well, it's ourturtlehouse.com, and it kind of requires an explanation. Meg Johnson was in hiking in southern Utah, and she accidentally jumped off a rock called Turtle Rock and became a quadriplegic. Hmm. And her story is just incredible. In fact, there's a little movie called Falling Up, which anybody can find on YouTube, the Meg Johnson story, Falling Up. And just show it to your ward council. It's crazy. Uh, It's only about, I don't know, 10 minutes. So we started this company and we connected it with Turtles because that was a pivotal event in Meg's life. So OurTurtleHouse.com. And we started to put a lot of talks and things on their resources. But yeah, just, uh, I don't know, Desiree Book, whatever. (laughs) That's great. The last question I have for you is, as you look back, uh, you know, your time serving as a bishop, uh, looking back on that time, being a leader, how did that help you be a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, gosh, so many things come to mind. Right at first, I have so much compassion for the leaders and respect for them. And I, after a few months, I thought I will never question a bishop's decisions again, because I just knew that there's so much more going into things than, than I knew. And so many other families and other things that are, are kept quiet, that, uh, that are confidential, that you're working with. And I thought, you just don't know that. So that changed my attitude toward, toward leaders. 
other than that, really, back to Brother Covey, focusing on loving people and relationships. And we can do, uh, that has to be there before we try to do the other things. And one of the things that I did as, as a bishop, we had a motto my first year was onward and upward. And I remembered the President Kimball statement that we paused on some plateaus long enough. We need to work onward and upward. And we called it onward and upward together to emphasize missionary work. And then another thing that we did in another year was what is your next step? Because for some people, their next step might be coming to the church. Their next step might be, oh, I go to church, but I don't say my prayers. Their next step might be, I need a temple recommend. Their, their next step might be, I have a recommend, but I don't go. <laughs> so that's a very individual thing. Get your own personal revelation about what the next step the Lord wants you to take to come closer to Him. And uh, I don't know, I felt like that was helpful for us. And that concludes my interview with John, by the way. Bless his heart. He's been uh, someone I've looked towards as an example in my own life. Even back when I was uh, a junior and senior in high school and he came to speak at uh, our seminary. And just a phenomenal talent that he has of teaching, connecting, knowing the scriptures. And he would be worth spending some more time with. And I mean, and if you haven't read some Stephen Covey books as far as like church books, that may be something to put on your on your reading list because uh, there are some phenomenal ones. I actually wrote down the one that, that he mentioned, the, the Six Events of the Restoration. One one of my favorite books is The Divine Center that you got to check out. Uh, but anyways, fantastic interview with John, by the way. I want to give a shout out to Michael Brinton, who actually uh, helped arrange this interview. I think he's a, a family member of, of Brother By the Way. So if there's anybody else who has a connection a contact somebody whether they're you know somewhat famous or not or whether they speak around the world or not just an interesting perspective on leadership that you think we should reach out to go to leadingsaints.org/contact and let us know now obviously that list is filling up we can't reach everybody but we want to find those dynamic leaders whether they look like that dynamic leader or claim to be most dynamic leaders <laughs> think they have nothing to share until we get a hold of them and uh, But I'd love to hear from us. So go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, let us know, and we'd love to reach out and consider them for an interview. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the Core Leader community today. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.